everybody and uh, I, this is a serendipitous guest I have with all the things that are going on in the world today my guest is Norma Jean Amaldovar Amaldovar it's not easy for me to say I already have enough problems talking if you've listened to my podcast um, anyway Emma Jean Amaldovar is my guest today she is a former cop Los Angeles cop, and then she turned to a sex worker, and then a, a, an activist while being a sex worker, an artist. It's an incredible conversation. She's very funny. She's very charming, and uh, she. It's. It's. Uh, first of all, if you're a first time listener, thank you very much for being here. And if you're here because of Norma Jean, um, feel free to. I have many guests on my show that are activists. Uh, if you haven't listened to the show before, I invite you to go and look at my catalog. I have almost 180 episodes at this point. And uh, if you like Norma Jean, there's probably other guests that you're going to enjoy. Um, and I feel it's a, a, a very opportune time to have her on the show because she, even though I recorded this a few weeks ago, she's talking about police corruption and giving an insider view of a lot of the things that go on, and not just in the Los Angeles Police Department, but... Uh, police departments in general and it's really interesting so um i hope you enjoy this conversation if you uh, please real quick um if go to my show notes that will have everything in it who writes my songs and uh, links to ms norma jean's work and activism so please look at the show notes for all those thank you very much for listening and uh, uh here is norma jean I got my Pepsi, and I'm ready to go whenever you are. Uh, oh, Pepsi? Oh, man, I'm a Coke guy. I thought we were going to hit it off. Oh, God. <laughs> Diet Pepsi. Diet Pepsi. <laughs> I'm, I'm a, not a big soda pop guy anymore. I used to love oh. it, but I try to... I don't know. I, I It's my one... Th- it's, uh, you know, I have spots of health where I'm like, no soda, but yeah, I'll have more beer. <laughs> uh, well, I don't drink alcohol. I don't smoke cigarettes, and I don't drink coffee. The only... You know, I've only had two different vices in my life. One of them paid well. <laughs> <sighs> How... Just to uh, acclimate my the listeners to uh, what is some of your how did you uh, can we get a little bit of your history how you wound up into sure. uh, as a sex worker because also you had a Christian you grew, grew up in a very Christian household am I correct I did I did yes I I grew up with a, a family of fourteen children and we were ensconced in the Fundamental Baptist uh, Church and. My whole life was geared towards becoming a missionary when I grew up, and I kind of did become a missionary, but a whole different mission field, so not what my mother had in mind, I'm sure. Um, did, did did you share with them when you became a sex worker, or did you just... Oh, of course. No, 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 no. I, I, I had to go back. I knew I was going to be going public and uh, I needed to make sure that my mom knew 
before I, you know, went public. I mean, I'd already become a call girl, but um, I wanted to make sure she knew because I didn't want her to be surprised when suddenly her friends would call her and say, hey, I see your daughter on TV. <laughs> so. um, did you have... <laughs> Because I have spent some time in the Christian world as well, and there is a lot of uh, sexual repression or deny. Did you already have strong feelings about uh, sex and sexual orientation when you were younger, or was that something that sort of was an awakening? Well, I mean, obviously, I, I grew up believing, first of all, that you got pregnant in Technicolor, because that's what my mother's tracked. <laughs> if you go to the movies, you're going to get pregnant in Technicolor. So that's what I thought. I thought my mom got off to the movies, and that's why she had 14 kids, because she always was going to the movies or something. <laughs> 14 kids? That's crazy. Ah, well, actually, she had... Two died uh, in you know childbirth. They were stillborn, but uh, there were fourteen of us that remained, and I thought that's how she got pregnant. I did not know the facts of life for a long time, and then uh, obviously in my teens, I started realizing that probably wasn't true. <laughs> so, and and I went to my first movie when I was about seventeen or eighteen. So, and I didn't get pregnant. And that's a good. Um, what what made you move away from Christianity? I mean, other than it's a wise choice. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I I moved to California, and I was already I was already kind of swaying away from religion um, because I try to think rationally, and to me, a lot of the things that I taught was taught and that I believed just weren't rational and so when I came to California and I actually came out just for a vacation but I stayed and I just said okay you know I I really don't believe in that but I got in I got caught up in a, a religious cult for a very short time and during that time I met the man the first my first husband Mr. Amadovar and um and, Fortunately, though, I uh, got out of that marriage after he had um, had sex with my 16-year-old sister who was staying with us at the time. So Lord. that was kind of a shock for me at that time. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> That's not usually... But like anyway... Uh, it, I mean, it was it was not. I I got over it. My sister got over it. I mean, she she's had issues being married. She's had a lot of husbands, and I think a lot of the problems she had stemmed from that situation. So that was kind of like not a good thing. No. Um, so did did uh, California suck its suck you into its sinful ways, as they uh, as people like to think about this state? Well, it it did and it didn't. I mean, and when I was married to Mr. Amadovar, obviously I was still involved in that religious cult thinking. But then, then I said, no, I you know I really don't believe this. And so I I persuaded him to stop going, and we stopped being involved in that. Um, and then I decided that I needed to get a job and divorce him. So he had filled out the paperwork to work for the Los Angeles Police Department because he'd been in the military um, police. 
when he was in the, I guess he was in the army. I can't remember. Who cares? He's my ex-husband. <laughs> <long time ago. laughs> um, so he had filled out the paperwork, but by the time they sent him the paperwork, you know, all the forms to go officially apply, he was already working as a construction worker and he was making really pretty good money. So I filled it out and I got the job and the rest is history. So there I was working for the LAPD in 1972 as a civilian traffic officer because in 1972, women were not hired to be police officers. And if you wanted to be a police woman who did not work out on the street and only had indoor abilities, you know, to, to work and file papers, um, you had to be 5'7". And... Oh, I'm five four. I'm never gonna grow taller. I was lucky that I got that tall because my mom is like four foot seven, little bitty thing, and my sisters are all short. So I was lucky to be five four. But I get the job, and then I divorced Mister Amadovar, and uh, went on my way. And, and and during that time, of course, I developed sexually, except that. Um, all the sex partners that I had were cops who thought that making love was like using their gun and all they had to do is take aim and shoot. And most couldn't get it out of the holster before it went off. And it was really very discouraging. Um, was that also, was that of, um, I, I mean, I mean, we had the sexual revolution in the 60s, but was there still a lot of guys, uh, there must have been a lot of men still in that mindset of like, take care of myself, oh, see you later. <laughs> absolutely. Oh, yeah, no, that, that was like the whole thing. I mean, it's like, I just really wanted to find, a, you know, a, a lover amongst the good-looking cops, and they were really, you know, quite good-looking, a lot of them. But they just, they, they had this attitude towards women that if a woman needed an orgasm, she was probably a whore. And so I didn't want to be thought of as one of those kind of women. So I never said anything. I was like, uh, oh, okay. Okay, well, thanks, thanks a lot. <laughs> and then they were on their way, and I'm like, hmm. And most of them were married cops, too. But uh, it was very discouraging. And it wasn't until I was 24, because I was 21 when I joined the LAPD. But then in, in the, let's see, it was 1985 because I was 24 going on 25. And I met the man who's my husband now, and we've been together now for 44, going on 45 years. And he kind of changed my whole perception about sexuality and about women having uh, sexual needs and their ability to multi-orgasm and all of those good things. And, well, the problem was that for the first six months that we went out, she's an older man, and I met him, it's a long story, and you can read the book or if you ever get a copy. Um, I thought he was gay, and we went out for six months, and I thought, oh, this is my nice older gay friend, and he was so suave and sophisticated, and he never tried to get in my pants. And I thought, you know, I mean, that's why I figured he was gay. Plus, he had very soft hands, and he wore aftershave. And cops did not do that. So, you know, we dated, and well, we went out, not dated. That's kind of the wrong word. Date implies that it's, you know, a usual relationship. So six months later, he calls me up, and he says, I can't 
see you platonically anymore. And I'm like, what do you mean? You're gay. <laughs> and <laughs> he said, that's news to me. I most certainly am not. And he most certainly was not. So this man that I married and have been in love with all of these years was the most fantastic lover. I mean, I could not believe what my body was capable of in terms of pleasure until he showed me. And it was like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, you know, to make a long story short, years later, I found out that the reason he was such a good lover and, and loved women and knew what we needed to get pleasure was because when he was a young man, he's from the hills of Tennessee, and he worked in the uh, coal mines when he was about nine years old, but then he ran away from home. He ended up in New Orleans, and he ended up working in a brothel, first as a towel boy and then as a bouncer. So the women there, I mean, here's this guy. I mean, because he, he was, like, really tall, long, flowing blonde hair, big blue eyes, muscular, and they made him their boy toy, and they taught him how to please a woman. So he knew what to do, and he knew what to do with my body. So after after 10 years of working for the LAPD and seeing the corruption and the vileness that goes on within law enforcement, unfortunately, I had enough, and I decided I was going to change careers, but it wasn't until I was hit by a drunk driver in a stolen car at 11.10 on April the 18th of 1982 that I left. And that was the last night I ever worked for the LAPD, and I didn't know what I was going to do then, but I had met a call girl when I was driving my patrol car, and she'd pull me over and ask me to follow her home because she was being followed by these guys. And we got to her house, which was up in the Hollywood Hills, and she had a really nice house, and she had a really nice car, and she wasn't all stressed out, and we kind of talked, and I found out what she did. She was a call girl. And so when I decided what I was going to do, I went to her and I asked her if she'd introduce me to the madam she worked for, and she did. And the rest is history. And I started working as a call girl, and it was the best job I ever had. I could make my own hours. The guys that I saw were all known to the madam. I worked for a number of different madams, and it just... <laughs> It suited me, you know. I mean, I was born to be a whore. What? Let's let's face it. <laughs> and this, there was no. Um, it was just that's it. I'm, this is what I'm going to do. There was no struggle. No, it was like a, a nope. epiphany. <clears throat> no, I mean, there was there was no emotional like, oh my gosh, what am I doing? Because by now, you see, I looked at sex a whole lot differently than I did when I was 18. Obviously, and one of the things that really I I knew from the cops how bad they were in bed. I mean, guys really need to have someone instruct them on how to pleasure a woman. But not only that, a lot of women don't know how to please a man, and a lot of men are extremely sexually frustrated. And 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 I found an amazing assortment of people's fantasies, and I they were just. 
they were really enlightening. I can tell you that. Yeah, because I saw in an interview where you equate the experience to an, a performance art, and that that you give the yes. And uh, can you elaborate on that? Because I think that's very that's a very interesting uh, thought. Well, you know, I mean, everybody has fantasies, which sexual fantasies, which they don't necessarily share with their primary partner. Um, and some people don't even have a primary partner and they still have fantasies. And to be able to create that fantasy by using words and and tools, if you will, you know, like, uh, like dildos or whips or chains or whatever, and to take the person into their fantasy and, and make that fantasy a reality for the time being, for the hour or two hours or overnight or whatever it turns out to be. I mean, it, it is like a performance art. It's like I'm there performing a fantasy for this person and I want to make it as real as possible for them. And I, I really enjoy doing that. It was, because I think a lot of people don't understand the the world of uh, sex workers and um, there's so many preconceived notions about what. First of all, why do why do people have such a hang up about it? Because uh, to, to me, it's, well, there's a lot of reasons. <laughs> <laughs> the primary reason stems for religious beliefs that you know multiple sex partners is a bad thing. The second is because that you have had since probably the '90s. Um, you've had, it started before that, but you had the radical feminists out there um, demanding that prostitution be eliminated, abolished, whatever, because it exploits women, because women are so fragile and so delicate that they can't possibly endure man's sexuality without, like, you know, being destroyed. And that has been pounded in the collective psyche of not just the U.S., but around the world. So you have, like, two groups that are are, are are hammering this kind of concept in. On the one hand, you've got the religious conservatives who believe sex outside of marriage is bad and wrong, and therefore whores are terrible and evil, and you must, you know, rescue them or whatever. And you've got the lefty feminists who say, oh, no, all, all sex outside of... Well, they don't care about sex outside of marriage. What they care about is multiple sex partners and the fact that men are exploiting us poor, stupid women because we don't know that we're being exploited. And it's become part of the media focus, and, and you've got all this sex trafficking nonsense. And it's like not that I take sex trafficking uh, lightly. It's just there is so little of it. And you look at, and, and I'm talking about statistically, everybody comes up with this these lies, like there's 100,000 or 300,000 children being sex trapped in the United States every year. Well, if anybody took a calculator out and did the math, they would find out that that just simply is impossible. There's not enough men in the United States to provide 300,000 or 100,000 children when the arrests for prostitution over the past, let's say, 25, 30 years, the arrests of children, and they do arrest children, and they do arrest children under 10, 
the the number is is like 1.81% of all arrests for prostitution. The majority of sex workers, people in prostitution, are between 18 and 65. And it's like there's no possible way you could have enough men in the United States or around the world to provide that many. Because oh, here's the other claim they make. Um, the average age is blah, 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 and, you know, between 12 and 14, which is also not true. And that they're forced to see between 10 and 45 men a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Now, even if you had... <clears throat> The men that they see, uh, seeing a prostitute every day, you would still need, for all the people doing sex work in the United States, you would need billions of men. Problem is, we don't have billions of men in the United States. We don't have billions of men available around the world. So we probably would have to import men from Mars <laughs> to provide all with work. Why do you think they manipulate these numbers? They just find, is it just a way to get their moral agenda out? <clears throat> because I noticed, like, they also, th that was the excuse they used for shutting down a lot of the Craigslist's of personals. Of course. Yeah, yeah, I mean, well, that's, the, the, the thing is, the, the reason they wanted to shut them down is because we're all being sex trafficked. And see, the radical feminists claim that there is no consensual sex work that we are all forced to do it, even if we say we're not. It's like they totally take away a woman's autonomy and ability to say, I am not a victim by making the claim that we just don't know we're victims. Right. And, and that did just drive me crazy. Because clearly, I am not unintelligent, and neither are I, the majority of my colleagues. And even though I'm not working anymore and haven't for years, it's like, no, we're not victims. You're trying to turn us into victims, and you're taking away our autonomy and our ability to speak for ourselves. And there's always that assumption by uh, a lot of people that sex workers are in some way damaged. I know. Well, you know, if you look at the statistics from the FBI, you will find that there are thousands and thousands of women who are victimized by their husbands or boyfriends every year. It's called domestic violence. And they far outnumber in terms of arrests and reported cases of, of domestic violence than, than arrests for prostitution and or reports of sex trafficking. And if, if if we're going to use the criteria that so many women are damaged by sex work, then we're going to have to abolish marriage because that really damns women. Yeah, I asked, I have a sex worker friend, and I we talked about that, and she's like, uh, about like being sexually abused as a kid. She's like, so are nurses and police officers. Yeah, and exactly. It has, exactly. It has nothing to do with your choice of vocation. Exactly. I mean, somebody could say that the reason I joined LAPD was because I wanted to empower myself after having been sexually molested by my father when I was a kid. It's like some of my other sisters were also molested by my father, but they did not go out and become prostitutes. And I joined the LAPD when I was 21, so maybe that's what I was doing to compensate for my damage. Right. Yeah. So. You know, and what is, a lot of armchair psychologists. 
Yeah, nobody. Yeah, exactly. And because you mentioned you worked for madams, which I think a lot of people get the when they hear the word prostitute, they think of uh, Harvey Keitel and Taxi Driver, some seedy, <laughs> seedy dude who's. Yeah. No. And uh, what is the what is that world like? Because it sounds like a lot uh, more common than. Is it more common than like street walking? Well, yeah, absolutely. Streetwalking is a very, very, very small percentage of all sex work. I mean, it's like you have this whole wide universe of sex work. The highest end would be the call girls, the ones that are back when I was working, you know, between 500 an hour and the one night that I made $10,000 and I never took off my clothes and just basically talked to my client and told him how beautiful he was when I dressed him up in women's clothing and he was a lesbian call girl in his fantasy. So you've got both the high end, but you've got the escorts. You've got people that work for madams. And by the way, there are male madams as well. And it, the problem is they have been labeled pimps. And people use the word pimp generically to mean anybody that somebody works for. But pimp is just an employer. And you could call the, you know, my bosses at the LAPD, my pimps, because they pimped me out to write parking tickets. And I wrote hundreds and hundreds of parking tickets. And I didn't get 40% of the or 60% of the money that I made for them. I got like a pittance compared to how many tickets I wrote and how much money I generated for the LAPD. So the LAPD was my pimp. <laughs> um. When did you start to uh, turn your sex work towards activism, and what was what sparked that for you? Oh, I started that right away. I started, you know, one of the reasons that I became a call girl is because it would give me time to write the book I was writing about the LAPD and the corruption, the book that became Cop the Call Girl. And I started that. That was like when I became a call girl, my goal was to have time to work on my book. And I got involved with Margot St. James on Coyote LA, like within a couple of months of being in prostitution. And I attended conferences in Europe and all that, you know, prostitution conferences, conventions, whatever you want to call them. And my activism started like basically the day I left the LAPD. So, and, and I have been active ever since. I mean, I had become more active as I got older because I had more time. And when I stopped working, uh, my total focus is on either taking care of my husband or um, giving the middle finger uh, verbally and um, in in writing to the LAPD and to police corruption and to the anti-prostitution abolitionists. That's been what I do. So for, since I left in you know nineteen eighty two. Why are we still like in because other countries are far more accepting of sex work than the United States? What is why is it still like an illegal in most most states or what is it? Nevada is Nevada the only state where you can legally hire? Us? Yeah, it, sex work is legal in some places in some counties uh, in Nevada, um, but you know, I mean, sex workers around the world, and I'm, I'm involved internationally with the sex worker rights movement, we are aiming for decriminalization of consenting adult commercial sex in all areas of sex work, um, not legalization, because legalization is an entirely different uh, 
approach to sex work. In other words, it keeps, you know, like, what we want to see is removal of all criminal penalties for consenting adult prostitution. And that would leave it open for all other kinds of laws that apply to every other worker and employer in any other field of labor to be applicable to sex work. But no new and special laws relating just to prostitution because a law automatically gives law enforcement officers access to our bodies. And when that happens, you have cops who use the law to extort us for sex, money, and information. It's been that way since prostitution became against the law. It's that way all around the world. If you want to work and you don't want to be busted, you will provide the cop with those things. I want to take this moment right now to thank you for listening to the podcast. And if you like what you're hearing and you want to hear more, you can become a Patreon subscriber. At patreon.com slash Matt Dwyer, you'll find bonus episodes, commentary on every episode, blogs, videos, pictures. Just become a subscriber. It's a great way to help me keep the show going. If you can't be a subscriber to Patreon and you want to help the show, do me a favor and tell some friends about the show. Word of mouth is one of the best ways to support the show. Or you can go to iTunes, rate the show, give it five stars, write a review, and I'll read it on the uh, podcast, and subscribe. That helps me with the old uh, podcasty numbers. And if you like my podcast, listen to Hunk with Mike Bridenstine or Kilgallen's Pub with Joe Kilgallen. Also, don't forget to go to themattdwyer.com. That's a jumping off point for all things conversations with matt dwyer you can find merch on there links you to my patreon and social media why don't you buy a t-shirt what the heck why not now back to the interview and is is do you are you seeing progress with changing this we actually are. I mean, there's a lot of states. We have we have various sex work organizations in different states that are are working on this, and they are actually interacting with legislators. We have one in another. I, I I really don't want to mention it yet because I don't want it to be spooked. But yes, we have we have some legislators, some elected officials, some national. I mean, officials that are national politicians, not just local and state, that we're working with. And, you know, the research that I've been doing for the since 2012 on, on Operation Do the Math on my website, policeprostitutionandpolitics.com, what we're doing is I give the colleagues that are in that state, I mail them a, a, a bunch of stuff. I was going to say a shitload, but you can edit that out if you oh, want. You can could, could swear all I, you want. I, I, well, I sent them a shitload of material, and, I, and they hand it out to the people who are in power, and we are changing minds, and we are getting politicians and prosecutors to stop going after sex workers. We have possibly a consideration of overturning the FOSTA-SESTA laws. That would be, in my opinion, one of the greatest things that could happen right now because that has been so damaging to so many sex workers, and it just has destroyed their lives and their ability to be able to screen and, and protect themselves when they find clients. So, yeah, lots of good things are happening, and I'm I'm just hoping that the work that I do and the work that they do is going to pay off. Uh, 
And yeah, and you have worked with a lot of, uh, you did an art exhibit with a bunch of uh, sex workers uh, in New York. Have you, you've done more than just one art exhibition with... Well, we, you know, back in, in uh, 1997, we had the International Conference on Prostitution with Cal State University Northridge, and we had a great art exhibit uh, at the thing. And the original art exhibit title was going to be um, Visions of the World Through the Eyes of the Whore, the Prostitute is Subject and Artist. But the um, academics were a little squeamish about us using the word whore. So, you know, because, oh, you know, people are going to be offended. I'm like, oh, look, we're the fucking whores. Excuse me, but we're not offended. So, you know. But we we had to change the title to accommodate the university. Otherwise, they were not going to allow us to have an art exhibit. So it became a much tamer name. It's just, it's... I but, yeah, I mean... I, we, 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 I work with a lot of the other sex workers who are artists and writers and poets and filmmakers, and they, they're all over the world. We have these amazingly talented, brilliant men and women and trans sex workers who, who use their time that they're not doing their work uh, to, to create things. I mean, that's one of the reasons why a lot of them turn to sex work is because it does give you the time and the financial resources to follow your artistic dream. And it's just amazing. So we work with like Carol Lee in San Francisco who does her, uh, you know, festival, the film and arts festival every couple of years. It's, it's like every other year. And it's just, it's just amazing how much talent these people have and most of the people in this society have no idea that, that this is what we are. I mean, we were artists and writers and filmmakers and poets and you name it, musicians, songwriters. Yeah, I have do a, a lot of things. I have a, a sex worker friend, and she's a fucking incredible writer. And it's just, I think people don't, I, I don't know why people have such a limited view of, of the, because the, of, it's just, it's just, they're just people, man. It's like, why do we have to like think it's you know it's to box them into something? And it's and it's like as a as I as a creative person, it's like it's hard to find a if when you're a struggling artist, it's hard to find work that accommodates creativity. Absolutely, absolutely. And believe me, sex work is most accommodating for people in the sex industry. I mean, I've known some of my activist friends who finance their documentaries with sex work because they can't get a grant because they're whores. So, okay, fine, I'm a whore. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to finance my own film. And they do. And it's it's amazing. I mean, they're just so creative and so... Uh, I'm trying to think of the word, but, yeah, I mean, they're just, just amazing people. Yeah, it's uh, now. I just want to go back because uh, I I feel like I jumped ahead. But when you so you your husband has always been aware that this like you became a sex worker while you were married. No, we got married the night before I went to prison. Oh, that's <laughs> it, right. You completely right. skipped right. over my whole prison experience. <laughs> the seven years of my life that yeah, LAPD took away from me. But yeah, no. Uh, obviously, we, uh, he was my boyfriend then, and when I decided to become a sex worker, 
I went to him and I said, honey, this is what I plan to do. And this is why. And I totally understand if you can't deal with it, but I have to do this. This is what I have to do. I have to take on the LAPD and this is how I'm going to do it. And he, in his marvelous knowledge and about horse, because that's, like I said, I didn't know that part of his life until this, when I talked to him about this. Um, he said, well, as, as long as you don't become hard and jaded and take care of yourself, I don't have a problem with it. I said, well, that's good, because I'm going to do it whether you have a problem or not. But thank goodness he didn't. And that's when he explained to me about his knowledge of horrors from New Orleans and what he learned from them. And he understood that what you do for a living is not the same as your personal relationship. So... I got into sex work and my husband was very, well, we didn't, like I said, he was my boyfriend then. It wasn't until, um, April, let's see, what was that? It was, uh, I'm sorry, November 18th, 1984 that we got married because what happened is that I was working to get over my anger at the LAPD and I was seeing a therapist about it and I was just so angry at all of the cops is one bad block. But I mean, I knew that not all of the cops were bad. Not all of the cops were corrupt. And so the, the therapist suggested that I try to reach out to somebody on the LAPD that I thought of as a friend and that wasn't corrupt to my knowledge and see if I couldn't reestablish a relationship with them. So I thought of this woman named Penny and, you know, we had been friends of sorts. She was a traffic cop, too. And when she had come on the LAPD, she had been in um, internal affairs for a while. And then she became a traffic officer. And so when she was first in our division, she was trying to learn to ride one of the bikes and she broke her leg. So I made her a little doll with a broken leg because I've been making dolls forever. And uh, so we became friends. So now I thought of her as someone I could talk to. So we met for lunch and I told her about my new life and I told her what I was doing because I have no shame about who I am or what I do. And she was most intrigued. But Penny at the time was like 50 years old. She was uh, six foot. Well, she was like, she was tall and she weighed about 300 pounds. So there wasn't a chance in hell that she was going to become a call girl ever. But she said, Gina, Gina, if I was young and attractive, I'd make a million dollars. And so now that generated a thought in my head because she was getting me stories about cops, kinky cops. She get me a story because when she was working in internal affairs, these kind of stories came up. One of them was about a captain who got one of his underlings to bring a live chicken to his office and he masturbated with the live chicken until the chicken died. Okay, that's kind of sick. That's not a fantasy I would, you know, fulfill. But anyway, so she was getting me these stories. I thought, wow, gee, I got to do something nice for her. So since it was her fantasy to be a call girl and that was never, ever, ever going to happen... Um, I had a client who liked taller, older women than I am. I mean, now I'm older, but back then I was in my 30s. And Harry was the cousin of our then incumbent governor, George Duke Majin. 
And so I went to Harry and I said, Harry, I got this friend and she's never done this and she'd really like to do it and see what it's like. I explained how she looked and he said, she may be tall, but that sounds very ugly. So I said, look, if I give you the money to pay her with, will you see her? And he agreed to do that. So I was like, oh boy. So unfortunately, my phones were tapped because the cops had found out I was working as a call girl. And that's another long story that I'm not going to go into. But in any case, um, I called Penny up to tell her about this fantasy. So she agreed, okay, fine. So I set it up with Harry. and But Penny, in the meantime, wanted to come over to my house to talk about this. So she came over and she was wired. And, um, she asked me all these questions and, you know, like I am with you, I'm just like totally open. I don't have any like hangups. I just, you know, spill it. And I did, I spill it with her. I was telling her all about all my clients, my fantasies and all these other things. So anyway, on Saturday, September 17th, the date was supposed to take place and, um, I was home with, with my husband or my boyfriend then, Victor. I'll just say Victor from now on. And uh, there was a knock on the door, and seven cops with their guns drawn came in, arrested me, charged me with one count of pandering when I told Penny about the client, and I, she said, is there sex involved? Or she says, what do I have to do? I said, nothing you haven't done in a normal adult relationship. She said, is money involved? I said, yes. I didn't tell her that I had to pay the guy because that would blow the whole fantasy, right? <laughs> so, so anyway, um, now the cops are there and they charge me with one count of pandering, which is like the most innocuous thing. Because pandering is just simply encouraging a person to commit an act of prostitution. Okay, that's all you have to do is, when she said, is there money involved? I said, yes. And, and what do I have to do? Nothing you haven't done in a normal relationship. Those words are a crime, a felony with a mandatory three to six year prison term on the first offense with no prior convictions. So I was charged with pandering and everybody thought that that was the most ridiculous thing they ever heard of. Unfortunately, the cops were after me. And when I went to trial, Penny got on the stand and she was cross-examined, she said, under oath, the reason she did that was to stop me from writing an expose on Los Angeles police. That was the headline of the newspaper the next day. That was the reason all of it happened for seven years of my life that got destroyed by this bitch, okay? So anyway, um, my attorney, bless his heart, waived the opening statement, and upon cross-examination of the victim, rested. That was it, period. Didn't get me on the stand. Didn't, didn't bring up any defense whatsoever. So the jury was, like, stunned, but according to what they heard, I had pandered. So I was convicted of one count of pandering. So the judge, Judge Aurelio Munoz, sent me to prison first to to be studied for 50 days to see if I was dangerous to society. Well, I may be dangerous to the L.A. fucking PD, but not to society at large. Anyway, I was held in solitary confinement from Thanksgiving, from the day before Thanksgiving of 1984 till Jan the middle of January of 1985. 
So I got out of prison, and the judge says, okay, you know, this is your first offense. I'm going to give you probation. So then I go on probation. But the little cunt wouldn't shut up. And I'll tell you about that in a minute. But I was on probation for two years and seven months with no violations. But I kept going back on television. Every talk show wanted to, you know, have me on their show, and I'd go on and I'd blast the LAPD and Daryl Gates and, you know, the the prosecutor got really pissed at me. So a year after I was on parole, they filed an appeal of my probation on the grounds that my crime was worse than rape or robbery because I was commercially exploiting my law enforcement past to draw on scandalous escapades that undermine respect for the law. And because I wouldn't shut up on all these talk shows, I needed to go back to prison under the mandatory three to six year prison term. So I said, when they filed that, I said, okay, obviously I haven't been loud enough. (laughs) So that's when I decided to run for lieutenant governor of California. And so my, one of my other brothers was out here and his friend wanted to be my campaign manager on the Libertarian Party. So I got the nomination and I became the Libertarian candidate for lieutenant governor of California. And I ran a really interesting campaign. I had these outrageous campaign posters in which mostly I was naked except for like a few choice spots all over me um you know like ribbon around my boobs and other places and that was my cut the red tape poster and come the election i got over a hundred thousand votes which is you know pretty good for a convicted talent hooker right (laughs) so then the try the date was set for me to go back to court. But in the meantime, I did a couple of Joan River shows. I did a whole bunch of Donahue shows. And now it's time for me to go back to court and see whether or not I was going to uh, go back to prison. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the um, appellate court upheld the decision and said, just because nobody else goes back to prison, there's no reason she shouldn't. So then I, I go to court and then the prosecutor says she's totally unrepentant. And she needs to go back to prison. And so the judge said, okay, fine. So he resentenced me to three years in state prison, even though I'd served two years, seven months on violation-free probation, 50 days in solitary. So that should have counted as having served a sentence already. So whatever was left would be like, what, five days? But no, I went back to prison where I was with the Manson family women and, um, I was there for 18 months, and then I went to work furlough. And while I was at work furlough, I was sexually assaulted by one of the corrections officers, who thought he was God's gift to women on, uh, you know, at the at the halfway house. And um, then I was paroled, and I got out, and I immediately went on another talk show. <laughs> <laughs> and I talked about how this this corrections officer had actually done something physically against my will, unlike what I did to Penny, where I only said words to her trying to get her leg to make her feel good. Um, so I mentioned this on national television. By the way, I did tell the the guy that ran the the halfway house, and he said, "Well, it's your word against his," and you know, and he says you didn't do it. You know, so too bad. So sad. Out the door. So now I'm on national television and I talk about this case. I get back to California and um, I'm called by the Department of Corrections. Why didn't you tell somebody while you were there? I said, but I did. 
So what happened to him is that he got transferred from working at the work furlough place where there were women to working in an all-male prison. He did not get arrested. He did not have any type of other punishment. While I, who just said words to some bitch, went to prison and lost seven years of my life. So that's the story of prison. And they they took your, you had a manuscript you were working on, and they took that too. Oh, that was original. Yeah, no, originally when they arrested me, that's, they took my unfinished manuscript, and they never gave that back. That was a long time ago. So, so they, yeah, but they that was the, the day that the cops came. So the, you went against the LAPD, and they were like, obviously, going to fuck with you and not let it go. They, they were very pissed, and I'm like, okay, fine. But you see, they thought that I was going to back down because I was kind of like a little mousy girl when I was on the LAPD. I mean, you would never have thought that I would go out there and take on the whole LAPD and Daryl Gates if you had known me back then on the LAPD. I just didn't do those kinds of things. What kind of corruption did you see when you were involved in the L- other than the chicken fucking? The- <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, I... Which is a pretty big one. <laughs> but, okay, the cops were having sex with the female explorer scouts. One cop that I knew very well, not intimately because I was too old for him, he was into minors, he was having sex with a 10-year-old girl for five years. He got caught, and the same year that I was sentenced to prison, he was given probation for having raped this girl who actually turned out to be his daughter. He got probation. There was a whole lot of cops having sex with the female explorer scouts back then and, and a couple of male explorer scouts too. What is, I don't know um, what that is. What is, what is the explorer scout? Is that like boy scout? scout? It's, it's, it's part of the scouting program, but they work with the uh, police in, all over the country. There's, um, you know, a, a program where if a, if a teenager is interested in going into law enforcement, they will be part of this explorer program where they will go on ride-alongs and, and, you know, hang out with the cops. They have their own uniforms. And so this is, there's a big, huge write-up. If you do a, a, a Google search for cops and explorer scout scandals, you will find more than you'll ever want to know because it still goes on now. I mean, it's just hideous. So um, he, these cops were having sex with the Explorer Scouts after work, after you know, because it was at nighttime. They usually worked at night because the kids were in school. And then they came there and, and hung out with the cops and did ride-alongs with them. And then afterwards, they were, had parties in the parking lot in the Hollywood Station. So that was one of the things. Then you had a burglar ring. There were cops that were burglarizing businesses. They would take orders from other cops Okay, what what electronic equipment do you want? Then there was this one store on Vine Street, which was an electronic store, and they'd go by, they'd throw a rock, set off the alarm, go in, take their list from other cops, take that equipment, put it in their car, then call the alarm company. And the, the alarm company got kind of suspicious because it kept happening, right? So they tell the FBI. The FBI calls Internal Affairs and says, you've got a problem. You better fix it or we will. So there was this big Hollywood burglary scandal, none of whom ever got convicted or went to jail or anything else when it, was, when it broke. 
The cops were having sex on duty with street prostitutes. They would take them up to Griffith Park, which is the big park in Hollywood, and have sex with them. And then, you know, okay, girls, you're on your own. You can walk back to Hollywood Boulevard, which was miles away. They had a murder for hire ring. It just, it went on and on. It was just so outrageous. And and nobody cared. And it was just everybody in the force knew this shit was going on? Hell yeah, of course they did. How could you not know that all these cops were involved? One of the cops, his name was Jack Myers. I knew Jack and I knew um, Ron Venegas, who were two of the other people involved in the burglary ring and the prostitution sex and all that. Jack did a, a what, do you, what do you call it? When you, he talked to the press, but he also did a deposition. And he told about how this went all the way up. Everybody knew about it. So Jack was on his way downtown. He lived out in Simi Valley. He was on his way downtown to give more deposition. His truck went off the road. He went into a coma, and he died. The other key witness in the burglary ring and the prostitution thing was a, was a prostitute named Sandra Bowers. She was found stabbed to death and in a motel, and... There was suspicion that it was a cop that killed her. Nothing ever happened. Nobody was ever caught for killing her. So, I mean, this was all going on, and how could anybody in their right mind that cared about what's going on in society and how these cops are committing more crimes than the people they arrest, how could you not do something about it? And and you, this sort of thing, you believe, still happens today? I know it does. I, that's what I do every day. I get all these stories about cops raping children. I have cops raping prostitutes. I have cops running prostitution rings. Um, cops, it's just, it's endless. I have on my, I use the, I'm a Mac addict. That's my addiction. I don't use, I don't drink, don't smoke, don't use drugs. I just, I'm a whore and I'm a Mac addict. That's just all my addiction. And I have, you know, in my safari, I have on my sidebar all of the folders in which I put all of these horror stories. I have them on my website by list. But, you know, back in 2017 when it was, I I just had so many cases of cops raping children and prostitutes that I, I stopped adding them to the Internet list. I just keep them on my computer so i can refer to them it just it's overwhelming how much corruption goes on and people don't know about it do the do the cops still fuck with you (laughs) well i don't know that they fuck with me i'm sure my phones are still tapped i don't think i will ever stop being a thorn in their side that they'll want to stop but um i every time they did something to me i went on a talk show you know, so they just, you know, if you can get the cunt to shut up on TV, we'll, we'll drop the appeal. That's what the prosecutor said to a friend of mine who was also a friend of his. The friend was also a client. And he told her, get, get the cunt to shut up and we won't, we won't go after her anymore. And I told my friend to tell the prosecutor, you can tell him this cunt ain't going to shut up and do whatever he's got to do. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Uh, so when people say the cops are just like another gang, that's a totally 
Because like, it's totally true. I call them the blue mafia. Because people get really defensive. Like you know, there's the yes. blue lives matter and all those things, and it's yep. ve- it's very. Because uh, I have, you know, as like anybody who has friends of color, they'll tell you, "Oh yeah, I'm fucking terrified of this cops." <laughs> yes, yes, they are a gang. There is no question about it. And that said, there are still good cops out there. And believe it or not, after my book came out, finally after ten years, because it was finally picked up by Simon and Schuster, who had the courage after the Rodney King beating. And they said, ah, okay, now Daryl Gates isn't in a position to go after us for publishing this book. So after that, it's like, it, where was I? I'm sorry, I had a senior moment. <laughs> oh, the uh, Simon & Schuster published your book. After, oh, yeah, after. Simon & Schuster. The editor, my, my literary agent who submitted it to 250 previous uh, publishers at they finally picked it up and said, okay, we're, we're not afraid of Daryl Gates anymore. So my book was published. The hardcover and then paperback came out in uh, 90, 95. The hardcover came out in 93. But yeah, I mean, it's just like, okay, now they're not terrified of Daryl Gates anymore, so now they'll get my book out. I'm working on, believe it or not, three other books, and they're probably going to get me in as much trouble when they get published, I just have to finish the research and the research just never stops because there's just too many of them, but there are good cops. So after my first book came out, I got letters from cops thanking me for my book, thanking me for taking it on because they can't leave. They can't speak out. They're stuck there. They've been there 10 years. They've got a mortgage, a family, and they can't just leave. So, some of them have sent me gifts. I have I have coffee mugs from several police departments across the country because they were glad. So I know there's good cops out there. And it just, what we do to those good cops by forcing them to have to stay there and, and face this every day because everybody's like, oh, cops can't do no wrong. They are our heroes. Well, some cops are heroes, but when you allow bad cops, like this one uh, cop who recently in Hawaii, okay, he raped a five-year-old girl, and he got probation. A five-year-old girl and got probation. How the fuck does that happen? Sounds like if you're a total shitbag, you just become a cop because it's a free ticket. Yeah, well, it is a quick ticket because, you know, they get away with so much so often. I'm working on a case right now with a young woman who was raped by a cop who was her mother's boyfriend when she was 12 years old. She reported the rape to her counselor the next day. They did not arrest him. They said there wasn't enough evidence. He did, reti- he, did, he did quit that job, but he got another job on another police department, and he was still a cop for a long time. So nobody pursued the case, and she kept going to the prosecutor and everybody else, what's happening with my case, what's happening with my case? Well, finally, back in 2019, the cop was arrested for rape when the state police went after the guy did some research and said, okay, and they arrested him for like three counts, rape, child, just all the different things that have to do with raping a child. She's 24 now. 
So the trial was set for March 20th of last month. But on March 5th, the prosecutor had to drop the case on a technicality. And what was a technicality? Well, she had reported the case like she was supposed to the day after. If she had not reported it that day and she had waited 10 years, the statute of limitations was now 15 years, but she reported it back when there was only a six-year statute of limitations and nothing was done, no charges were brought, so the case could not go forward because the statute of limitations was up. So the cop is now free to pursue more careers in law enforcement. Jesus Christ, that's really screwed up. Yeah, and this girl, I spent a couple of hours with her yesterday on Skype. We talked. She's suicidal. She's angry because this all just happened last month. She thought in February that finally this asshole was going to go to jail and pay for what he did to her. But no, now he's a free man. And there's nothing she can do about it. So she's been hospitalized twice for attempted suicide. I'm going to try to find somebody who can file a civil lawsuit against the government officials who dropped the ball and allowed this to be, you know, go out beyond the statute of limitations and and allowed this thing not to be able to go to trial and, and have some justice. So I I just, these kinds of things happen every day. And it just, ah, why don't people know? Why don't people care? If, if this does happen, do you, where should someone turn if that does happen with a cop? Is it, um, because it almost sounds like a hopeless. It sounds like what? It it, it almost sounds like it's hopeless. Like no one is going to help you if, if you, if a cop abuses you. Is it, where does someone turn in such an instance? That's a good question. Where do you turn? You you know, it's like, I don't know the answer to that right now. I don't know. I mean, I've seen so many cases where people just get away with it. I mean, and, and you're not talking about just some underling cop. There's a cop from, there was a police chief from New Orleans, not New Orleans, but out in Louisiana. His wife ran a daycare center. He was raping children from the daycare center 40 years from ages 4 to 14. He finally got caught. He finally got sentenced to life in prison. But for 40 years, you don't think those children didn't go to their parents and say, this man raped me? And their parents, what do you think? Oh, no, he's the chief of police. He wouldn't do that. 40 years, he got away with it, rape after rape after rape. The police force and the Catholic Church seem to have a lot in common. They certainly do. And again, in the Catholic Church, who do you go to? You go to your parents, oh, no, no, my, you know, our priests wouldn't do that to you. No, you're making it all up. You're evil. You're bad. Don't talk bad about priests. Yep. And it just happens, and it ruins so many kids' lives. 
and and it's like, what are they supposed to think of the justice system that doesn't care about them? And then we have all of these people, these very same people, say, we have to stop this sex trafficking by abolishing all prostitution because prostitution is all sex trafficking. It's like, you don't care about children. You don't care about sex trafficking. You care about your institutions and keeping them uh, with their polished image of, of being these heroes. Or if you're a priest, of being these sacred men. They don't care about the children. It isn't about the children. It's about power. Yeah. Uh, well... I would like to wrap it up here. Uh, <laughs> it's a <laughs> kind of a heavy spot, but that, uh, there's a fantasy right there wrapping me up. I mean, no, I mean wrapping it up. Uh, have, 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 what have you ever gone? Like, was there ever something people offered and you were like, uh, like fantasies that you wanted to be fulfilled that were challenging? I don't. know. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, there were things I wouldn't do. Um, I wasn't into any kind of golden showers or any kind of uh, activity that was degrading to me or to the to the uh, client. Um, you know, things I would not do. Uh, I really liked to do fantasies that were fun, that were interesting, and that made me feel good about making my client feel good. So, but uh, there were things, and I'm just not not going to go into them. Because <laughs> uh, I always wonder, too, is like, did you ever have clients where you're like, all right, he's a handsome one. This is going to be great. <laughs> well, you know, yeah, I did have some good-looking clients, and it was really nice. But see, I wasn't there for myself. Think of it this way. It's like being a, a, a chef in a restaurant, a really high-end restaurant, and you're the chef, okay? And you love to cook, and you cook these delicious meals, and, you know, you know that some of the people out there are really, really attractive people, and you go, I'm so glad those attractive people like my cooking. You can't go out there and sit down and have a meal with everybody that enjoys your cooking because <laughs> you never go home and eat anything else, you know? And it wasn't about my... <laughs> sexual it was about theirs so you think about it like a chef and say i'm so glad my my patrons at my restaurant like my food and i was so glad that my clients liked the way i presented their fantasies awesome where can people find more of of if they're curious about any of the things we talked about where, where can they find you on the internet Oh, I'm all over the internet. You just put in my name and you'll find me everywhere. But they, I've got a website, normagenamadovar.com, and you go to my bio and see all the different articles I've written for law journals and every place else. You can see me on John Rivers. You can see me on 60 Minutes. Um, you know, and then my police prostitution and politics.com, which is where I keep all my research. And it's kind of overwhelming because it's like, I just take my mind and I dump it in there and I'm like, here it is. Okay. You figure it out. <laughs> yeah. I will put, I will put links to both things in my show notes so people can access that easily. Cause I, and your websites, there is a lot of stuff. It's, it's great. Yeah, there is <laughs> but it's, a lot of stuff. I have so much more to post. It's like a never-ending thing. And and you also your artwork is there? Uh, can, is there yeah. anything? Is that also on your website? Or is it, I, I didn't well, know if you had there's a link to it. 
there's a link to my artwork. I'm not selling my artwork anymore, but they can go to my normajeansgifts.com, normajeans with an S dot gifts dot com, and see the stuff that I make. I make. I'm a Halloween artist, and I unfortunately I can't sculpt anymore because I have terrible arthritis in both my hands, and that really sucks. But you know, oops, hold on, that's a telemarketer. <laughs> um, that's that. That's that Christian scammer that calls and says, I've heard what you're doing. So I hang it up. But anyway, yeah, so they can see my my artwork that I no longer can create. They can see pictures of my O.J. chess set that I sculpted during the O.J. trial and when when, uh, Heidi Fleiss was on trial. Um, That kind of got a lot of notoriety. But all my, my Halloween art, my scary dolls, and I make really sweet, nice little dolls that are very adorable. And they can find those at normageensgift.com. Great. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Matt. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Conversations with Matt Dwyer. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review it on iTunes and subscribe to the show. Also, go to themattdwyer.com and check out all things Matt Dwyer. My Patreon, merchandise, you name it, it's there. And thank you for supporting podcasting. I hope you come back and listen again. Thank you very much. I learned to swear when I was on the police department, so I swear like a cop.